Hey there, we've got a special conversation here for you to recap some of the week's events, take a look at what happens next, and examine what it all means for, for power dynamics across the region and the globe. So I'll be joined here by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler and Jacob Shapiro, who is a partner and leads geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments, a U.S.-based wealth management firm. And he also hosts the Cognitive Dissidents podcast. That's Dissidents, D-I-S-S-I-D-E-N-T-S. Our conversation is up next. All right, welcome. So I'm joined, of course, by John Fowler, who needs no introduction, and Jacob Shapiro, who also happens not to need an introduction because we already introduced you, Jacob. Uh, so let's just get right into it. I, I think... You know, the, the question that people want answered is among all among the many questions that people want are demanding answers to after this horrific violence uh, that we saw over the weekend is why now? What explains the timing of this attack by Hamas? And, you know, we've we've heard speculation a million different ways. I'm wondering where you fall on this question. Sure, I'm happy to heap some speculation onto the other speculation. First of all, I mean, I think I do need introduction because everywhere I go, people ask me, oh, are you related to Ben Shapiro? Are you Ben Shapiro's little brother? And it's no, 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 different Shapiro, uh, better show in my opinion, but whatever. Um, But look, in terms of of why, look, like like the intent uh, or Hamas's intent is still a bit of a mystery to me. My first reaction when all of this broke out was that it didn't make any sense because the Israeli government was incredibly weak. The Israeli electorate, um, was not, I mean, Netanyahu is there just kind of by default, just because there's no one else there. And because of oddities of Israel's democratic system, which we can go into if you want, but are not that interesting. But I mean, the long and short of it was this Israeli government was in government was incredibly divided. And I mean, I wouldn't say that the Palestinians were getting, getting everything that they wanted, but Hamas doing this, all they did was unite the Israeli electorate behind this government and really taught a fresh generation of young Israelis who have never had to deal with anything quite like this, that no, like you can't live next to Hamas. The two-state solution maybe is not viable. Maybe all of the, you know, all the assumptions that they had before are gone. I will say I was talking to um, an Israeli geopolitical analyst earlier this morning, and I've seen this narrative start to go around a little bit, which is that uh, maybe Hamas like didn't quite know how successful they were going to be, that they were expecting a lot bigger pushback from the IDF and they thought they were going to attack and they would meet the IDF and they'd you know, kidnap a few people, make martyrs out of some Hamas fighters, go back and then negotiate going forward. And I think there are two pieces of evidence that do lend some credence to that argument. The first is, and if, if you've watched the videos, you, you're having PTSD with me. I mean, the videos of this entire thing are absolutely gut-wrenching. And I don't know if we've ever had like, like video like this, as detailed as this for something as awful as this. Awful shit like this happens all the time over the world, but like this is particularly bad. But anyway, the people who were taking uh, hostages didn't strike me as particularly methodical about it. I mean, it really felt like crimes of passion, not crimes of, oh, we're going to take these people back and we're going to negotiate for hostages. They've been so violent towards the hostages that if I'm the IDF, I have to write off the hostages. I can't assume that any of those are left. And then the second thing is, if this was some sort of larger plan to attack Israel, you would have expected synchronicity with Hezbollah or with these Iranian-backed militants in Syria. And like Hezbollah fired off a couple rounds, but like that seems to be it so far. There's no big push. So part of me thinks that that argument 
might be the however unsatisfactory it feels for how much damage they did. Like the answer might just be Hamas thought IDF was going to stop them in their tracks. And when they didn't, they were just let loose in a country that has blockaded them and occupied them for decades. And you you saw the inevitable backlash of a desperate and broken down people for getting a chance to strike back at the people they think are responsible for their their pain. So that, that's the best I've got. Well, the the IDF, the IDF obviously should have stopped them. They've spent billions upon billions of dollars building walls uh, between Israel proper and Gaza. Uh, there are drones flying over Gaza pretty much at all times. There are uh, the you know there is signals intelligence. There's human intel. There's every feasible uh, uh, node uh, of a military intelligence system inside Gaza that you could possibly ask for. Why was the IDF not there? Where were well, they? There are, there are a couple different explanations for that too. So there was a Wired piece that I retweeted earlier that I thought was very good, which was um, they had the information. There's just too much of it. When you're gathering that much yeah. information, it's not about whether you have the information. It's about whether an analyst sees it and gets it up the chain to the right person and that that person believes I it. Saw, I saw a great quote or uh, someone said, you know, most intelligence analysts are looking for needles in haystacks. Israeli intelligence analysts are looking for needles and stacks of needles. Yeah. So, I mean, it's uh, it's it's hard that way. But I think there was also a failure of because all intelligence failures are ultimately also a failure of imagination. And I don't think that Israeli intelligence was looking for a, a relatively large ground assault from Hamas fighters. Like the, Hamas doesn't send 2,000, 3,000 fighters to invade Israeli territory. Usually they fire off some rockets, they hit a checkpoint, something like this. I don't think they were treating Hamas like a potential army in the same way that, you know, the North is much more like they have a lot more resources stationed in the north because of the 06 war with Hezbollah and because Hezbollah is more sophisticated and has more resources. The West Bank, more sophisticated, more people defending um, settlements, things like that. The flip side, and this is the part that's going to be very difficult for Netanyahu to survive, um, his political career to survive after the war is over, is, well, was it also because Israeli domestic politics were completely broken and because Israeli reservists and things like that were resigning against you know Netanyahu's reforms of the judicial system and because the internal uh, politics of Israel was so bad, that could also be the answer. But that goes back to your question about what was Hamas's intent. That's gone now. Like everybody's going to be unified now. This won't happen again and the army will be um, on the borders or if not on the borders, occupying and destroying Hamas and maybe Hezbollah, like maybe they're going to go after them next. I don't know. I think that's on the table. Yeah, that I, I agree with all of those points. Some, something, Jacob, that I, I kind of wanted you to weigh in because I think you're particularly eloquent on this stuff is, uh, you know, I've seen online a lot of these pe people speculating that the idea of you know, Hamas must have expected a overwhelming response from the IDF. That, that's just, you know, very, very predictable. So there's this idea that Hamas knew that maybe they were a little bit more successful with the attacks than they meant to meant to be, as you mentioned. Um, but the real goal of this was to strike a blow against Israel and then to draw the IDF into a prolonged conflict in Gaza, where you know modern warfare would suggest that they have better odds. You know, urban war, urban fighting, network of tunnels, all this kind of stuff, um, and that the whole goal of this attack was actually to draw the IDF in. Uh, and create a create more instability and conflict in the region. Do you, do you give any kind of credence to that idea, or is it just impossible to know? I mean, it's not it's not fully possible to know. I mean, I will say that 
you know, it makes sense that Hamas would want to draw Israel in if it wants to scuttle Saudi-Israel normalization, which is possible. It's also possible that maybe Hamas thought that, okay, if we draw Israel in, then our friends in Hezbollah or our friends in the West Bank are going to rise up and establish a second front against Israel. Like if you're thinking rationally with your Western brain, um, you know, those are things that you might think could happen. Although again, like you're, you're really, like Gaza is going to take the hit for that. Um, and the people of, mm-hmm. of the Gaza Strip are going to take for take the hit for that. Um, but I, I think one thing to think about here is to try and put yourself in the shoes of Hamas from an ideological perspective. And remember that Hamas comes from the general Muslim Brotherhood tree. It has Islamist ideology and it. it has jihadist ideology in it, too. Um, and of course, it's been radicalized by Iran. It's seen it has seen what has happened with ISIS in the region, too. And if you go back to Al Qaeda, the, the OG terrorist group, if you want, or the OG jihadist group, their whole goal was get the United States to come into the region. And that will cause a rebellion in the Arab world and in the Muslim right. world against the United States. And we will overthrow not just the United States, but these secular dictators in these Muslim majority countries. And we will install Islamic law and things like that. So perhaps Hamas is thinking ideologically here and thinking, okay, if we can use this as a rallying cry against Israel, then our brothers in the West Bank will rise up with us. And our brothers in Lebanon will rise up with will rise up with us. Maybe even the Egyptians will rise back up and put the Muslim Brotherhood back in charge there. And in Jordan, which is a majority Palestinian country, maybe we can do it there too. So maybe there is some element to that. But um, if they had hired me as a geopolitical analyst to red team their report, which would have been funny, Hamas hiring me as a geopolitical analyst, you could probably do an <laughs> SNL skit about that. Um, I would have told them they were crazy because the only thing that's going to happen here is that Israel is going to completely wipe you out. They're going to come in and you're going to unite the Israelis against you. And the IDF is going to try and set, I mean, they're literally talking about setting back the Gaza Strip 50 years. So it also, if you take the argument that they weren't expecting this level of success, then that argument also doesn't hold because they wouldn't have thought they would have gotten this far in the first place. They thought they were just getting some hostages and then they were going to trade back and forth um, rather than than basically making an incursion and getting so far in. So th- those are my best guesses, but they're guesses. Can I, just, just before we move on, can I drill down on that assumption that the IDF is going to be successful there though? I, I, again, I, I worry, I don't, I don't worry. I mean, you know, in my brain, I'm thinking, you know, that's not dissimilar to what perhaps Vladimir Putin might have thought. That's not dissimilar to what the US thought when it, it launched, um, you know, its various invasions. The idea that modern warfare is com- very different. And like, what does victory even look like for the IDF? Are they going to be able to kind of dismantle the uh, the Hamas leadership, like close down the tunnels? Uh, or is it, are they literally just going to go, you know what, we don't care about civilians and, and get rid of them all on that success? Because I, I just, I, I, I don't know what success looks like for the IDF. Well, first of all, they can kill every leader of Hamas if they want, and Hamas will still live. Hamas is an idea. Yeah, of course. And Hamas is an idea that the Israelis helped create because they wanted a counterbalance to the PLO like back in the 1980s. The the seeds of all of this mm-hmm. goes back into Israeli policy in general. As for the IDF, like what success means for the IDF, um, that's sort of a broader conversation. So I think the first um, objective will probably be to... Re- I think they're going to occupy the Gaza Strip. The only way... I can figure out that you're going to completely eliminate the threat is to reoccupy the Gaza Strip. And does Egypt take it over after that? Do they try and bring the Palestinian Authority in? Do they just rule it directly? I don't know. But I think they're going to go grid by grid, block by block, and just you know destroy the whole place and try and kill as many Hamas leaders and members as they can. 
and they will assert direct control. Um, so in that sense, like it's a very clear military objective. Uh, but I think you're right that the hidden assumption in all this is that the IDF is going to be successful. Um, and that in some ways is built on this myth of, in, of invincibility where, you know, the IDF in 48 and in 67 and in 73, um, you know, just decimates much, much larger forces, much, much more existential threats from multiple Arab countries that invade around them. We could talk about why the IDF was able to do that. And, you know, by 73, the IDF is actually the stronger force, even on paper. Um, Egypt probably knew that going into the war. We haven't seen that IDF since 73. Um, the IDF's record in the Lebanese Civil War was not good. You've got the first and second intifada. Um, the 06 war against Hezbollah is pretty instructive. You get, you know, kidnapping Israeli soldiers. You get, you know, Israel attacking Hezbollah. Um, and that war was a failure. The thing is, that war was primarily a failure because, um, well, for two, well, sort of two interlinked reasons. Um, Israel didn't invade, really. Um, they said our air force is so great and our technology is so good. We don't have to take casualties anymore. We don't have to risk our sons and daughters to go in. We're just going to bomb them into oblivion and everything is going to go fine. And that doesn't work. Heck, if you actually want to root out Hezbollah, it's going to be messy work and you're, have to gonna, you're going to have to go in with ground troops. And the reason I think Israel did that, aside from overconfidence in, in their technology, was that a generation of Israelis grew up not remembering this well not that's that's the wrong word a generation of israelis grew up not having to not viscerally experiencing well, yeah, yeah. and not having to sacrifice like that was something their parents and their grandparents yeah. did so that they could go to the beach and drink arak and send tiktok videos to each other and everything else like that was the old days these are the new days and everything is fine and nobody's going to possibly threaten israel we've deterred them all um and the the thing that makes this conflict different i think is that um the casualties have already been taken so whereas a couple of soldiers dying in an invasion of Lebanon to defang Hezbollah in 06 was, too, was a bridge too far, I mean, what, the death count, it's, it's Tuesday, October 10th we're recording, I think the death count in Israel is up to 900, over 20, yeah, I mean, you know, 2,500 injured, still people missing, all these terrible videos. There's no squeamishness about casualties right now. There's just anger and we want revenge. And yeah, send the infantry in, like no more messing around. So, but I think you're... I think you're right. It's going to be an extremely hard operation. And the last, I know I'm um, droning on, but the last thing I'll just say is that what's going to be truly hard for the IDF, I don't think it's about whether they can do it. I think they'll subjugate Gaza, I don't want to say easily, but they'll do it. The question is how fast can they do it? And is it messy enough that somebody else does decide to open up a second front? Because Israel, it has a very, very strong military but you know, when you mobilize 300,000 reservists, you can't do that indefinitely. It becomes catastrophic for the economy. So you have a limited amount of time where you can mobilize your resources like that. And that's why Israel's successful wars are all lightning wars. Like They all happen very, very quickly, and it's shock and awe, and then it's over, and things go back to normal. So can Israel handle Gaza in the next 30 days without looking weak and without encouraging opportunists with, you know, Iranian-backed Syrian militias in Syria or Hezbollah saying, oh, maybe we should open the second front? Can they get, you know, control over Gaza within two to three months? I don't know. Like that's, that's kind of, all of it is going to be about pace and timing and how quickly it takes them to do it. But if they're sending the infantry in and they've lost their squeamishness about casualties, I'm not expecting a repeat of 06. I'm expecting more of like a, a 73 level of performance. But that is, you're right to call that out as an as an assumption. I can easily make the argument the other way. Tons of questions from there. I think the first thing I'd like you to go a little deeper on, because it's really important to understanding how we got here. Uh, you said that Israel was in some ways responsible for creating or supporting Hamas. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, well, just that, you know, if you... 
I don't want to take us too too far into the bowels of history, but you know, the PLO was the initial Palestinian terrorist group and the one that Israel was dealing with, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, the Munich Olympic Games, like that's all the PLO. Hamas doesn't really exist then. And the flavor of um, even the terrorist groups and also the regimes in the region back then, it was all secular. The PLO was a secular group. It was all about, well, not all about, but, you know, it was tied to the Soviet Union and sort of vague assertions of Marxism, things like that. Like it was sort of a different animal. Um, it, it's a bridge too far to say that Israel like supported Hamas or financed Hamas or anything like that. But um, it was Israeli strategy in the 80s to say, let's divide and conquer the Palestinians. Let's encourage other factions. Let's re you know recognize other factions so that not everybody um, goes along to the tune of the PLO. Because if you fracture them into these smaller groups, then there's not one voice, then the world will see them for what they are, and we'll be able to have more control. Um, and Hamas is born of that. Ha Hamas is also born of a turn in the 1980s and 1990s towards religious fundamentalism in the region in general. Like I said, all of these groups, like you can go back to Syed Qutb and the creators of the Muslim Brotherhood, like they've been around for a long time, but you don't really get Islamic fundamentalism becoming a political force until the 80s and 90s, until this, the promises of the secular dictatorships in the region become completely bankrupt and people are desperate enough and start looking enough for those religious explanations or religious justifications for actions and things like that. So Hamas is a byproduct of Israel seeking to divide and conquer and this rising sentiment of, um, of Islamist fundamentalism in the region in general. And I, I just say like, that was a mistake for Israel. It's also a mistake that we see all over the place um, to draw a very strange analogy, but like the Mexican government and the US supporting it thought that by splintering the drug cartels and the, and the war on drugs, that they were going to make the cartels weaker. They actually created a much more violent situation because all the different smaller cartels that splintered from the big ones started killing each other and turf wars and each one had to be more brutal than the next one. And we're only just now getting back to a couple larger cartels. And it's not a coincidence that the homicide rate in Mexico is starting to go down the last couple of years because they've consolidated into larger groups. So the more you, the more you create these smaller factions within you know, a pretty subjugated society, like, which is what the Palestinians were. Um, it doesn't actually, doesn't, it doesn't increase your leverage and it actually probably creates more, more drama than they, yeah. than they wanted. But hindsight is twenty twenty. I think a really instructive, uh, quote here, uh, that Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper reported earlier today, or maybe yesterday comes from a little known Likud backbencher named Benjamin, uh, Netanyahu. Correct me if I'm mispronouncing that. And the quote, yeah, the quote here is, anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring money to Hamas. This is part of our strategy. So I think you summed that up rather nicely. John, I don't, I don't know if you have a question here. I definitely have more, but if you have one. Jacob, I'm interested. You have a background at Stratford. Now you kind of analyze these issues and geopolitical issues with a more financial lens. Um, what those two jobs have in common, I guess, is trying to approach issues like this with a little bit more of a dispassionate approach, kind of, you know, these things are incredibly emotional um, events. But what? how do you kind of look at these events and, and cut to the heart of them, try to stay unemotional? What Do you use tools? Do you have a mental model? Do you have a process? Or is it just experience and, and time that kind of helps you get to what matters? That's an interesting question. Um I mean, I guess some of it is just temperament. I've always sort of been this way. Uh, my wife will tell you that I'll pick fights for no apparent reason. I just like to take like opposite sides of arguments all the time. Um, 
back in my my days as an undergrad, I took a course on the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with a friend of mine. Um, and I won't talk about either of our, of our politics in which we were, but we would go into each dis- discussion section and we'd meet beforehand and say, okay, do you want to argue pro-Israel or pro-Palestine mm-hmm. in this discussion? And we just completely, you know, confounded the TAs and the professors because one day I'm like, oh, the Palestinians must have their own state. And the next day, like, oh, the Israeli. And like, they couldn't figure out what we were doing. So like, I've always just sort of been that way. Um, there's also different ways to approach this, like uh, Marco Papich, who you guys have probably heard of or maybe even had on and who's been on my podcast a lot. He just sort of describes himself as a sociopath. He's just like, I'm bathed in indifference. I don't care. I'm a nihilist. Like, it's all fine. I'm decidedly not. I actually feel these things incredibly deeply and I get extremely emotional. Um, I just don't talk about it at parties and things like that. Like, I, I go and I feel that and I put it on on the shelf here behind me on one of the bookshelves. And once I get the emotion out, it's just sort of like, okay, like this is what's happening. And I'm just trying to get to ground truth. Um, I have enjoyed working more in the investment space because it's a lot easier to do that because the trade or the performance of the trade will tell you um, exactly how you're doing. That doesn't work in this particular case. Nobody's trading futures on, you know, gauze and artillery shells or anything like Mm -hmm. that. And anybody that does have exposure to this are companies in Israel whose you know, labor supply is now going to be affected by a mass mobilization. Like it's, it's much harder to do that in the context of this particular conflict. I'll also say, you know, you, I've worked at Stratfor, worked at GPF, I've worked at CI. This conflict in particular, people get so emotional about it, even people who have absolutely no ties to it. And I, I'm not in the business of comparing comparative suffering. I, I don't think that that's productive, but I will just say what the war in Sudan, I think it's 9,000 are dead so far. Ethiopia is staring down the barrel of a second civil war with the Amharas. Azerbaijan just took over Nagorno-Karabakh. Russia is still attacking Ukraine. You look around, terrible things are happening all over the place. But for some reason, people fixate on this conflict and get more emotional about it more than ever. And I say that because that um, has always made me even more passionate about being dispassionate about it because nobody is dispassionate about this conflict. Everybody feels emotional. And I feel like I'm actually doing something good by trying to be the one that says, okay, let, let's just let's just talk about what is rather than what, sh- what should be. So I don't have a good answer. I think it's temperament. You just have to choose that that's what you want. And um, when you choose to do that, like you lose that cathartic feeling of emotion. You don't get to call people animals and this, that, or the other thing. You don't get to talk about who gets to do what and who should do what and things like that. And for most people, that's what they want. They want the world to be black and white. They want to know what things mean. They're uncomfortable um, with the gray. And I don't know, my life has been in the gray. So I, I think it's just temperament, but those are some of the strategies I use to keep my, my, my head level. It's a really good idea. If you feel strongly about something to try and make the argument for the other side. Um, in some ways, my, like the way I deal with ideas is I try them on and I see how they feel. I try and like explore the intricacies and things like that. Like there does need to be a space, um, for that. And while the extremes do tend to like get all the clicks and crowd people out, I have found that most people, if you give them that content, if you don't assume that they want the McDonald's burger, but that they really want the, you know, the more complex, uh, I don't know, I was going to make a terrible food analogy. They're like, they usually will go for it. So I don't know. I, I still have faith. The quinoa and kale. Well, no, I don't know about that. That Now we're getting ideological, John. Like, don't, I'm trying to stay objective here with my cheeseburgers. I mean, there's a lot interesting there. One, the idea that you had a space where you could take positions that you didn't necessarily agree with without sort of necessarily be fearing that you're going to be tarred for the rest of your career with being on one side or the other. And I wonder if that was probably reflective of a, of a, of a university career that was 
prior to, or at least in the very early stages of social media. Um, and then the second thing you said, interestingly, is that, is why does this conflict seem to suck up so much, much oxygen? I think it's a conversation, Ethan, that our team has been having as we put together our newsletter every day in the sense of like, how do we cover it? Do we, we elevate it to the front page every every day for the next like two weeks because there is there is that interest people want to know about it but to your point why is it that much more important than Nagorno-Karabakh which really we, we got no interest in from our readers or very little interest anyway um but yeah it, it's it, it's an interesting question Ethan do you, do you have any yeah I got I have, I have I have one more you know big question for you here Jacob you're talking about the economic consequences of this inside Israel I think when we, th- we there's been plenty of comparing, contrasting to the '73 Yom Kippur War for good reason. This war happened, or this this attack happened a day after. Uh, it was asymmetrical in the sort of same way that Yom, the Yom Kippur War was. Uh, it was a surprise attack, the same way the Yom Kippur War was. But when we think back to 1973, the biggest global consequence of that war was the Arab oil embargo which reverberated, you know, across the Western world. Are, are we moving towards a, a similar predicament here? I mean, what, what's happening in energy markets? What's happening in the wider world? I don't think the 73 comparison is actually that close at all. Like, yes, it was an it was an invasion of Israel on a Jewish holiday and it was an intelligence failure, but that's sort of where it stops for me. The single most important point to say back is in 73, um, the United States was dependent on Middle Eastern oil um, and that's not today. I mean, the United States has been importing a little bit more Saudi crude lately to make the Saudis happy as part of, um, you know, the Saudi Arabia and the United States trying to reset relations with each other. But the United States doesn't need Middle Eastern oil anymore. The shale revolution changed all of that. Um, So maybe it'll be people lining up at other gas stations around the world and things like that. But there's no... There's no reason for Saudi Arabia to use this to jack oil prices the way there was in 73, where what they wanted was you know that, that defense relationship with the United States. It's funny, I, I mentioned I was talking to an Israeli analyst this morning. One of the things he said to me that really struck home was I, you know, I said the thing about Hamas and do you think it's to destroy um, or to you know, uh, prevent uh, Saudi-Israel normalization? And he said, Jacob, it was never about Saudi-Israel normalization. This is about America-Saudi Arabia normalization. We're all just bargaining ships about the United States and Saudi Arabia trying to normalize and they're just throwing the Israeli-Palestinian thing in there as a chip. So maybe it was never going to happen in the first place. But I do th- think that's a worthwhile way of looking at it, that this is actually about sort of at the grand strategic level, not that the, this conflict itself is about this, but how, what this is going to mean and how this is going to go forward is going to be that relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. And the fact of the matter is, ever since the Shale Revolution, the United, the United States-Saudi relationship hasn't made any sense. And that's why I think both sides have trouble dealing with each other. And I don't think they're going to find amidst all the fist bumps and everybody investing in Vision 2030, like, the United States doesn't need Saudi Arabia. Now, maybe it will in five years from now. Maybe these, you know, permables on oil prices who say that shale is drying up and that in five years time, it'll be a completely different story. Like maybe then we'll reset. But right now, here today, like there, it, there just isn't that same level of U.S. exposure to Saudi oil. So I think oil was what, up, up 4% yesterday? It was already down today. So a little bit of a bump, but not that big of a deal. Now, all of this changes if Iran really was involved in this and we're going to start talking about the Strait of Hormuz and a regional conflagration. Like, you know, it's still there. It's like a two to five percent percent probability 
scenario on my scenario tree, which is very, very uncomfortable for such a high magnitude event. But again, it's two point, it's two to five percent right now in, in my probability tree. So um, I, I don't think we're going to see it. And if anything, I'm, I'm I'm wondering if oil prices will go the other direction. If you would think that with this radical news that you would get a huge spike and I don't know, four, four to five percent on the first day, followed by a decline. Doesn't look like it. But I don't know. This is posting in two days. Maybe it'll go up 10 percent and I'll look like a moron. It wouldn't be the first one. <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by Millennium Space Systems. Millennium Space Systems, a Boeing company, is a small satellite prime delivering high-performance constellation solutions for the national security space. Founded in 2001, the company's active production lines and 80% vertical integration enable the rapid delivery of small satellites across missions and orbits. Check out the show notes to learn more. Jake, I have interestingly, I think that oil that oil take is is something that we don't see a lot of in kind of the more mainstream media when people follow these kinds of news stories. I mean, one, it's pretty technical, and and most people can't really control it. But what are the other things that you're looking at as possible consequences or side effects of this conflict that isn't being picked up? You mentioned Israel ha- runs the risk of having a, a real labor problem if mobilization or you know the reserves are still called up in 30 60 days time um what what else what else aren't we talking about that that we should be that's also a good question um and you know a lot of this depends on what scenario unfolds if if the idf makes quick work of the gaza strip and we're talking about a 73 level performance from the idf rather than a 2006 level of performance uh well, then I would think that that political unity will eventually translate into the Israeli economy as well. And that you'll see a lot of energy and a lot more political stability and all those other sorts of things. Remember, also, Israel has become a natural gas producer in and of its own right. And the war, at least thus far, has disrupted supplies for Israeli natural gas, some of which now goes to Egypt. Um, you know, that you know, at a regional level is pretty bad. And Egypt's been flashing red for a while anyway. They were talking about devaluing the currency again. El Sisi's been talking about you know a sham election to reinstall himself. But, you know, those those are geopolitical fundamentals that were already there. Maybe this pushes Egypt further towards the abyss a little bit. Um, but, you know, that's all that's all stuff that was already there. The the imp, the bigger impacts are if that scenario is wrong and we get some kind of regional war, then we do have to start talking about things like shipping through the Suez Canal or is somebody going to mine the Straits of Hormuz? Um, I don't see how Israel and Iran can fight a war against each other. The United States would probably have to be drawn in to do that part. Um we were talking about Azerbaijan and Armenia. Azerbaijan and Israel have pretty tight security relations. Does that, does the South Caucasus get thrown? Like if you start getting into that realm, then all bets are off. But um, I just don't think we're close enough yet to to maybe start getting there. But yeah, if, if, if you go to those sorts of things, we're talking about global shipping, we're talking about massive increases in global energy prices. Um, you know, so like, but yeah, like I, it's not even real enough quite yet for me to go there. For me, it's much more, okay, like let's watch oil, let's watch natural gas, let's watch the Egyptian economy. Maybe there's some opportunity within Israel itself. But um, from from a financial investment perspective, it's actually pretty hard to dig up major implications if it's going to remain an Israel-Gaza or just an Israel-Palestinian affair. Yeah, yeah. I Well, actually, I think my my next and probably my last question, given that we're, we're running long, I could talk to you all day about this, um, is, is to zoom out even further. You and I, well, you have been talking about a multipolar world for as long as I've known you, which is a couple of years now. And I've been kind of talking about it for not quite as long, but a while. I feel like I'm 
a stuck record on it. This idea that the world is kind of moving towards regional poles of power and and, and spheres of influence rather than the, the, the kind of US dominated global order that we've had for 30 odd years. Um, that's become a kind of a more mainstream word and view lately. And I'm starting to see some pushback on it. Does anything, is, I guess it's a tough question to answer, but does the Ukraine war, does this conflict, does that fit within your mental model for multipolarity or is it, is it causing you to rethink how you see the world? And, and if it is, why and what, and what, what can we expect? Like broad question, but. <laughs> well, no, first of all, I'm glad you haven't dug up the videos of from 2016 and 2017 with me, you know, saying, oh, it's, a, it's still a unipolar world. Don't worry. Like that was actually a pretty big <laughs> shift in my mindset. And I was talking about being a contrarian. You're right. Multipolarity has become so in vogue that uh, I'm almost uncomfortable. I'm starting to get uncomfortable with it because it's like, well, I, it's like, there's too many people on this block. I'm going to have to figure out what the next thing is past multipolarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I, I do think it's all helpful evidence of a multipolar world. I mean, I was arguing with some of the analysts on our team here, you know, some of whom uh, there's a diversity of opinions on our team. One of them thinks it's a bipolar world. No, that's a US China cold war type scenario. And another was like, look, this is like how Palestinians and Israelis killing each other has nothing to do with multipolarity and highfalutin concepts. Like this is just a local, they fight all the time. So this fighting's a little worse than before. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to those arguments. Um, but I do think um, if you zoom out at the broader level, whether it's Russia, Ukraine, whether it's Nagorno-Karabakh, whether it's China in Hong Kong, whether it's India in Kashmir, whether it's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, like you start cycling through all the territorial conflicts that we've been seeing, that does, I, I think that is indicative of a world where there isn't, and it's not even about a top hegemon policing things, because it's not like the United States had a police force for the world. But before, I think it really was, hey, like we're all globalizing. All ships are going to rise with this boat. Everybody wants to be in the OECD and everybody wants to be in the WTO. And all we want to do is trade and make money and all these other things. And that's not true anymore. Um, I think everywhere you look, people are talking about sovereignty and security and uh, you know, ensuring it's no, it's no longer lean supply chains. It's, you know, double and triple levels of supply in case the supply chain breaks apart. That's just sort of a change in mindset. And if you are one of these countries on the periphery, that's been waiting to settle scores for a long time. Uh, now is probably a pretty good time to settle scores. I didn't even mention Serbia, Kosovo, um, and that sort of thing. And there are plenty of other of these little conflicts all around the world. Like think about Scottish independence or Catalonia versus Spain. Um, going to South America, there's there's tons of this there too, uh, if you want to get into it. So no, I, I fully expect that you're going to see more of these types of conflicts on the periphery. The thing I would say, and, and the way I've been spinning it is um, multipolar worlds are actually pretty good places. It's actually how human history usually works. It's very rare for one country or even two countries to be the dominant countries. And usually competition where you don't have the major powers that feel confident pushing back against each other. Yes, you get all these brush fires in smaller places around the world, not to diminish them to the importance of the people that are there. But, but you know, these are not great power conflicts. The Russia-Ukraine war sort of flirts with this, but that was also a part of, I think, Russia's longer term geopolitical demise. But you know, the first stages of multipolar worlds, no major countries feel like they can go at each other. That's why they fight through the proxy groups. And in the meantime, you get lots of opportunities within those economies in general, all of which is a a convoluted way of saying, um, I think these are the good times. I I really worry about kind of the world that's going to emerge 10, 15 years from now, if China keeps militarizing at its current pace and India keeps militarizing at its current pace and the United States keeps spending 800 billion or 900 billion, whatever it is, like you start extrapolating that trend out 
Um, that's a scarier world. And I worry about the world that my children will inherit. But here, right here today, um, I know it doesn't feel that way because the media is just feeding us the terrible headlines and there's lots of terrible things happening, but there are always terrible things happening. Um, we're going through an energy transition. The advances in biotech that we're seeing in some parts of the world are absolutely extraordinary. The opportunities that will come from reshoring and nearshoring and you know, building up manufacturing capacity again, all incredible opportunities and things like this. Um, the, the mental map I always use is the 1890s. The 1890s was an incredible time of cultural effervescence and tech. Like look at a picture of New York City in 1890 versus 1905. You wouldn't recognize it. The scary thing is that World War I was waiting at the end of that period, but that was you know, 20, 30 years after the multipolar era began. Usually multipolar eras end with that, with those kinds of fireworks. So I think we're at the beginning of a multipolar era and that's the glass half full take, at least for me. Yeah, it is. It is certainly a half full glass each, each way, I guess. I, um, I, I don't know if I share quite that optimism. I feel it feels whether it's through the different technology and amplification of the media, as you mentioned, or the nature of technology with weapons, nuclear war, um, but even just kind of the destructive ability of one person now with, you know, bombs and whatever it is, that is the big game change for me from the 1800s or the early 19th century is that fewer people are required to do tons more damage. And I, I just wonder if those brush fires will stay brush fires and they won't leak out into something bigger sooner than than that that's fair enough and i'll also just say you know the, these terms like unipolar multipolar these are just stories that we tell ourselves to try and make sense of things like if you like well, go exactly. back go back to the unipolar era of u.s dominance over the world you can find terrible things happening all over the place we've got the serbian genocide in kosovo we've got the you know uh genocide mm -hmm. in sudan we've got Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008, like you start to look back at the world during that time period, it's not like it was actually that pleasant. It was just the dominant narrative was globalization, free trade, stable. progress, mm. things like that. Now, I think people's narratives have shifted to everything is terrible. Everything is going to hell in a handbasket. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the article, but I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards. It was um, It was an academic paper where they were sort of trying to get a sense of this golden age thinking. And one of the things they found, well, they found two things. Number one, that we love to consume bad news. It's like junk food. Like you give us bad news, we just consume it like it's the Big Mac or whatever. And that we tend to say, oh, like the past uh, was, was better. Like the golden age was better. It was 30 years ago, it was 40 years ago. But then when you go 30, 40 years in the future with that same person, they remember that past where they were bemoaning how terrible things was as the gold. They forget about the bad stuff and they remember the good stuff. So we love to consume the bad stuff in the moment. And then when we look back on it, we remember the good stuff. Like that's a thing that happens in our brain psychologically. And, you know, some, I'm not saying that the world is great. The world is not great. Terrible things are happening all the time. I have been torn up. I feel like I, I can't even imagine how, how Israelis are feeling. I feel like I have PTSD just from watching the videos of what's going on, let alone being there and experiencing it. So I'm not trying to shortchange that like terrible things are happening in the world, but I also will say, and this is where I think social media in general does affect us because most people don't have the self-discipline to turn it off. Like you just keep doom scrolling and things like that. Whereas before, like once it was on the news and then it was done and then you had to go play solitaire, I don't know, whatever it was that you could to entertain yourself. So I do think that's part of the thinking there and part of the mental cycle to break if you're trying to get ground truth. So. Do you want to give us a, a, another plug for your podcast, your work, anything where people can find you online, Twitter? I, I mean, I, you and I have been friends for a while and I love engaging with your stuff. And, and normally when I become friends with people, I, I stop listening to everything they say, but uh, you're the rare <laughs> exception. So I feel like everyone, everyone should go and find you to, to 
benefit from your wisdom. Well, I appreciate that. I'm a partner at Cognitive Investments. So if you go to cognitive.investments, that's our website. You can find the podcast and everything else there. The name of the podcast is Cognitive Dissidents. Um, you also, I mean, I also speak at events all over the place. So if you just want to go to jacobshapiro.com, I have that website too. And there's information about me there too. Uh, just whatever you do, don't think that I'm Ben. That's a whole another <laughs> different can of worms. I'm Jacob. Excellent. Uh, well, thanks so much for your time, Jacob. And um, we'll try and have you back on soon because that was a really fascinating chat. Thanks, man. Anytime. I could chat to you all, all day too, but I guess I have to go do real work now. So cheers. What a week. What a week. Um, not much has changed on the ground in Israel in recent days. We're, we're still hearing reports that the IDF is preparing for a ground offensive into Gaza. By the time you hear this, it may have started. Uh, there are city blocks in Gaza that have been leveled by airstrikes. In, in Israel, air raid sirens continue to sound throughout the day. There's briefly concern that Hezbollah had launched an assault from Lebanon on Wednesday. Those reports turned out not to be entirely true, but that doesn't mean it couldn't still happen. There's so much to reflect on from that conversation. I mean, you heard Jacob say at the end that these may be the good times that we're living through. He might be right. I just can't really say for certain. What I, what I can say without almost a shadow of a doubt is that things in Israel and in Gaza and across the region will get worse in coming weeks. Thanks for using us as a resource to try to explain this stuff this week. We'll, we'll keep doing our best to help make sense of it. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Tuesday.